0: So do me a favor, take the Bible that you brought with you this morning or the Bible that's there in the pew and open up to Isaiah chapter 64. For the, those of you using the pew Bible, that's on page 519. For the rest of you who have your own Bible, I can't tell you what page that's on. But Isaiah 64 is what you're looking for. And as you're getting there, Isaiah 64, as the tryptophan of your Thanksgiving turkey is finally starting to wear off, I want to let you know something that you already know. The countdown to Christmas has begun. Just when you thought you survived or perhaps avoided another Black Friday, Cyber Monday waits for you tomorrow. In a world that is all too ready to begin celebrating Christmas. I mean, they had the red cups at Starbucks back in October, right? Before we drink the eggnog, ...of the Christmas story according to advertising campaigns and shopping malls... ...I want to invite us to enter into the sacred space of what the church has long called Advent. That word that means arrival. This is an opportunity, a four-week extended reflection on the coming of Christ anew in our life and in our world. And I'm inviting you into this, but I'm going to acknowledge it might be hard for us to enter into this space... ...because we have entered a season, let's be honest, marked by expectation... Right, There is so much anticipation over these next couple of weeks that some of us, and I won't ask for a show of hands, have lists to keep track of everything. Right, We have lots of lists during this month. We have Christmas recipe lists. We have Christmas card mailing lists. We have Christmas gift shopping lists. And of course, we have our own Christmas wish lists. During this time of year, we find ourselves driven by our own personal desires or the unspoken expectation of others. One way or another, we all find ourselves looking for the perfect holiday. As holiday traditions flood us with nostalgic memories, we all become children again, yearning for the life, the relationships, the church, or even the nation of Christmases long, long ago. We can all find ourselves dreaming of a Christmas just like the ones we used to know. And as you have Isaiah 64 open, as we're about to read from it in a moment, you're going to notice that there's a bit of expectation and longing in Isaiah as well. During this season of the year, we read from Isaiah particularly because more than any of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah anticipates the coming of the first Christmas, the coming of the Christ, the Messiah. So as we enter in, in chapter 64, again, listen for those expectations. Listen for that longing as we hear his words. From Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when the fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, No one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter we are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us. We pray, for we are all your people. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me give you a little background on Isaiah before we dive into this passage. Isaiah, was God's messenger in the aftermath of Israel's great civil war, a civil war that left the nation divided into two, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. The two sides had their own kings. They were constantly in conflict not only with each other but with larger, more powerful nations. Isaiah, in fact, tried to advise three successive kings of Judah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And if you're familiar at all with your biblical history, more often than not, Those kings ignored his counsel to accept their own priorities. And eventually, both Israel and Judah fell into the hands of foreign invaders and the people were sent into exile. At this point in chapter 64 of his prophecies, Isaiah is speaking to a people finally coming home. Granted their release from their captivity in Babylon, numbers of people are returning back to Jerusalem. Their expectations are huge, Decades have, of being away have led many to long for returning to life as they remembered it their houses and their fields, the temple. But when they come home, all their expectations collide with a stark, cold, heartbreaking reality. Their city is in shambles. The temple where the presence of the Lord God once dwelled is in ruins. And Isaiah 64 reflects the shocking disappointment of the homecoming of Israel. These words, in fact, are actually part of a lament that begins back in chapter 63. Here in 64, Isaiah's cry just becomes more urgent and pleading. His prayer, did you hear it? Did you sense it between the words? His prayer is drenched with longing. Speaking on behalf of the people, did you catch it? If your Bibles are still open, you can see it. Speaking on behalf of the people, Isaiah's made a list too. And it's pretty straightforward. Come on down, Lord. Make an appearance, Yahweh. It's time to get up close and personal. Light it up, God. Light it up. Turn up the heat. Bring things to a boil for our enemies. Show the world how you roll, Adonai. Present your calling card. You know, rip open the heavens. Cause the mountains to tremble. Leave the nations quaking in their boots. Just like the rest of us. Isaiah and the people of Israel also dream of the past. Isaiah expresses the heartfelt, anguished questions of a people who have a history with God. They're dreaming. They're dreaming of an exodus just like the ones they've heard about before. You know, stories of God stepping in and doing something when the need was great. Tales of Yahweh wielding his glorious arm of power, bringing down the heavens on Pharaoh as Moses led the people out of Egypt. But that, as Isaiah says, was a long, long time ago. You know, back in ancient times. We're waiting, Lord. But we're also starting to wonder if you're for real. The Israelites who have barely survived foreign conquest and exile, who now confront the loss of everything they thought was permanent, demand for God to show up in a world that seems like a godless mess. They come with a list of expectations. They ask God to prove himself by showing he can deliver the goods They even, did you catch this? They even sort of hint their belief is contingent on the Lord coming through. Now, I don't know if you see what I see, but this sure sounds a a bit like turning God into Santa Claus, doesn't it? I mean, not that Isaiah would have visualized it this way, of course, but we do, right? Isn't that what this is all about this time of year? I mean, this time of year, the world focuses the fulfillment of its expectations on one person. Not a little baby in a manger, But the man dressed in crimson, the one with the broad face and the little round belly that shakes when he laughs like a bowl full of jelly. Good old jolly Saint Nick, Santa Claus, he's the one we're looking for. I mean, we track his movements, right? We talk about sightings as we wait for Santa to show up. Just believe, we tell ourselves and our children, and he'll come through. Bad weather, narrow chimneys, no worries, Santa always delivers. Santa always delivers, provided you've been nice rather than naughty. And that nice rather than naughty, it's even here in Isaiah 64. Isaiah comes pretty close, pretty darn close to laying out the same conditions when he says, God, you come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. Now, just in case you're starting to worry a little bit or starting to go, oh man, what a bummer, I've got nothing against Santa Claus. He's a great guy. I love Santa Claus. But when we turn God into Santa Claus, we've got a problem. If we just look to God to drop down presents from heaven whenever we ask, we're not really calling on the name of the Lord. We're just paying lip service to God to get what we want. Isaiah speaks of doing right gladly. He talks about laying hold of the Lord He's trying to get underneath this idea of pursuing a relationship with the giver rather than just looking for the gifts. And maybe, I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, maybe this is is what we all sense is wrong, and this has been going on for years. Maybe this taps into what we all sense is wrong about the commercialization of Christmas. In other words, when our behavior is self-serving for our own glory, not our Father's, then we're only doing right as a means of exchange. It's like some kind of barter. We're co-opting God to satisfy our own ends. And, and, and therefore, we're missing the bigger point of Christmas, aren't we? I mean, if we're just being good for goodness sake, as we sing during this time of year, then we're only being good in order to get something for ourselves. We're not being good to give something. Worship, love, back to God. And if we're being good for goodness sake, just in order to get something for ourselves, rather than to give something then that's no good at all. In fact, that's adding insult to injury. That's piling sin on sin. Isaiah suddenly sees it in the middle of this prayer. He suddenly, like it hits him like a ton of bricks when Isaiah says, all of us, not some of us, not most of us, not a few of us, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts, don't miss that word, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. In this one sentence in this prayer is a graphic picture of the full nature of the problem of sin. And it's so important we we remind ourselves about the problem of sin. The full problem of sin isn't simply a matter of a little stain, you know, getting some really bad stuff on you. It's an issue of mass infection, one of contamination, where despite our best efforts, whatever comes out of us is tainted. Tainted so badly Instead of making a clean spot, we just breed more disease. Beloved, we don't want God to be Santa. We don't want God to be Santa. We don't want to get what we deserve. I don't know if you watch movies at all or pay attention on TV, but it's, been, it's a couple of weeks ago this was first advertised, but I was watching TV one day, and they advertised um, this scary movie that's coming out called Krampus. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Krampus? Okay, if you haven't, you'll see it. It's, uh, you know, it's this this, this group, this family in this town, they're celebrating Christmas but they're all being nasty and mean to each other and so all of a sudden darkness descends on the town and Krampus is going to come and basically scare the living daylights out of all of them. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching, it's like, oh my gosh. Who in their right mind created? I mean, a horror movie for Christmas. I was like, just, this is terrible. And I, where did they, who came up with this? So I did a little research, which is a dangerous thing sometimes. <laughs> and here's the thing here's the thing somebody in Hollywood didn't create Krampus, man. If you know this at all, Krampus comes from German folklore, okay? German folklore. And it's from this time of year. In German folklore, Krampus is this horn figure. He's like a half goat, half man who punishes those who have misbehaved during Christmas. So again, we don't want God to be Santa Claus. We don't want to get what we deserve because if God comes down the way we want him to, we're not getting Santa, we're getting Krampus. (laughs) Right? I want to be clear about something. I I want you to hear this. Being good, doing right matters. I don't want to be flippant about this. (laughs) But the, the point is we cannot be good by ourselves. We do not do right on our own. Our only possibility, that's what Isaiah's tapping into here, our only possibility to do good, our only possibility for righteousness comes out of our relationship with God. And that's why what I want you to hear on this first Sunday of Advent from Isaiah is, beloved, we don't need Santa. I love him, but we don't need Santa. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. And Catch the shift in Isaiah's prayer as he has this epiphany of the real problem that he and all the people of Israel are facing, the true need that we all have. Suddenly, if you look at it, suddenly this lament which started out with, remember where we started with Isaiah here, suddenly this lament which started out with, why don't you give us what we want and tear open the heavens and get them, those wicked people over there? Suddenly that prayer that started that way becomes an appeal to please save us. Show up in mercy and shape us into the people we ought to be. Isaiah appeals to God being present no longer through some elaborate firework display, but instead appeals to God to be, to, come, to, to be present through the closeness and intimacy of his relationship to them as father. That word just jumps off the page in the prayer where all of a sudden Isaiah says, Father, you are our father. Father. The image that follows of God as the potter and God's people as the clay for me breaks this prayer open because now all of a sudden in this prayer we move from waiting upon our own expectations to waiting upon the Lord. We shift from a Christmas of our own making where we make room for Jesus in the midst of all of our other stuff to Advent where God prepares room for us. Where God has many rooms in his house for us through Christ beloved hear the gospel through Isaiah as we start this Advent season if God is the potter then God truly touches us we are not alone and we are not left on our own God is not up there the Lord God comes down and puts our life in his hands If God is the potter, then God seeks to shape us. The Lord purposes to work carefully and precisely through the events of our lives. The things that are happening in our lives are not random. That doesn't mean they're always what God wants, but they're not random. God works carefully and precisely through our homes, our families, our work, our relationships, our choices, both good and bad, to shape and mold and fashion us into something useful into someone beautiful. If God is the potter, then we are never, never, none of us are beyond God's skill to create with us. Now and again, God will find himself dealing with the issue of broken or shattered pieces of pottery. That's what we may feel like sometimes in our life. A broken, a shattered piece of pottery, but this is not a problem for our potter. No vessel is beyond rescue. With this Creator, with this Redeemer, with this Sustainer, our broken pottery can be mixed with soft clay and remade, remolded. Beloved, if God is the potter, then sometimes we might have to go through the fire. No one wants to be in the fire, it hurts, it burns. There's a lot of smoke in there and it's hard to see. But the fire makes us strong and durable. We come out of the fire. God brings us out of the fire and we come out even more useful. We come out even more beautiful than when we went in. This is what Isaiah suddenly comes to understand. This is what we're waiting for. This God who doesn't come as Krampus, who doesn't come as Santa Claus, but who comes as Savior. So for us, As we continue on in our journey, how can we follow this same shift that Isaiah makes in his prayer? How can we move from looking for Santa to longing for a Savior? I think there's three things that Isaiah gives us here in this prayer. Three things that we can take with us. The first is Isaiah's call to wait upon the Lord. That simple command of waiting upon the Lord in contrast to rushing through the holidays. Wait upon the Lord. I don't know if waiting is a challenge for you. I've confessed this before and it hasn't changed. I'm not good at waiting. I'm terrible at it. But what I found through my relationship with God is waiting becomes easier when instead of looking for what we can get, we reflect and offer what we can give. The first thing that we always have to offer before God, the very first thing we always have to offer is our confession. Waiting for God means coming clean, It means honestly coming before the Lord as we are. It means not hiding behind lights, not hiding behind tinsel and wrapping paper. It means like the people who first prayed this prayer were honest about ourselves and were honest about who God is and we realize and we confess that it's not just those problems or those people out there who first need setting right. Waiting on the Lord confessing means that I recognize and I confess that before I try to fix others, whether that's in a positive or a negative sense, whether I try to fix them by judging them or whether I try to fix them by saving them, it's confessing and realizing that I need to confront the fact that I need to be fixed first. I have nothing to offer if I haven't first received, if I'm not consistently living out of the grace of God. Waiting upon the Lord, confessing means realizing without God's grace, we're a part of the problem. When we stop waiting upon the Lord, we uproot ourselves from our life source. We need and we become, as Isaiah describes it, leaves, withered leaves blown away by the wind. And so the first thing we need to do is to wait upon the Lord, confessing ourselves, not seeking God prematurely or presumptuously, but acknowledging we are clay in the divine potter's hands. We confess that that cataclysmic change that we're longing for God to make out there all starts with our own change of heart and mind. It starts by waiting upon the Lord, but Isaiah also tells us to call on his name. As we admit we are not what we should or could be, we call on the name of the Lord. We seek not what we want, some cosmic Christmas light show, but instead, in calling upon the name of the Lord, we learn to long for what we need. And what we need is our Father to look upon us with a graceful gaze. (laughs) Calling on the name of the Lord means we're not declaring our expectations of God but we're in fact declaring our dependence upon God. Confession leads to repentance. That's that's always been the cycle in in the life of faith. We wait upon the Lord and confess ourselves, we come clean, but that then leads to repentance. And repentance, calling on the name of the Lord, means we're realigned to the reality of God's will and purpose, both for this world and for our lives. We're realigned from our own high or low expectations. And it's worth asking at this time of year what our expectations are for this Christmas because I, act, I, I often find that our expectations for Christmas often mirror our expectations the other 11 months of the year. And I want to be honest with you. I don't know what camp you fall in. On, the fir- on one side, some of us are expecting too much. You are expecting too much in the next four weeks. As the year draws to a close, some of us are looking for the perfect holiday, as I said before. We're we're looking through all the decorations, the exchanging of gifts, a little turkey and some mistletoe to make the season bright, to fix everything that is dark and dreary in our life. We carry the expectation that if, if we can orchestrate the perfect Christmas and if others do their part too, then the magic of the month of December will solve all our problems. It'll sort out our marriage. It'll improve our relationship with our grown-up kids or our aging parents. It'll better our standing with our friends or our coworkers. And my friends, the anticipation of orchestrating the perfect Christmas reflects our daily belief and expectation that we can sort out our own chaos, that we can resolve our own problems while fixing everyone else around us too. Personal responsibility is fine, and I want to encourage you, we ought to take personal responsibility, but we need to understand in our our grasp of personal responsibility that your life, my life, our lives are not our own. Self-help can only get you so far. You can't heal yourself. In the perpetual frustration of your attempts to solve your own problems, don't look for God to be your Santa. Let the Lord be your savior. And offering help and giving advice to others is all well and good. By all means, offer advice, give help to others. But understand, God isn't asking you to fix or save anyone. I need to repeat that because some of us don't hear that. Offer advice, help others where you can, but understand, God isn't asking you to fix or save anyone. You can't. In the ongoing struggle of watching another person stumble and fall, you might be able to play Santa for someone else, but only the Lord can save them from themselves. Some of us have really high expectations going into this year and, and it mirrors our, the expectations of our lives. Then there are those of us who, in the midst of the world and life's sadness, we've lowered our expectations we we anticipate far too little in fact maybe we don't even anticipate anything nothing at all we find ourselves standing at the bedsides of friends and family who are sick or in pain or dying We shake our heads as we hear of yet another life crushed by tragedy or cruelty. We open up the newspaper or our browser only to read another story of global terrorism, dire poverty, racial injustice, and corporate greed, and we become deadened to hope. We have low expectations, if any. We balk at false advertising at finding some Christmas miracle in a box. We bah humbug at talk of peace on earth and goodwill between men. The more things change, the more things stay the same, we silently tell ourselves. Some of us have no expectations or very, very low expectations. But but what if? What if instead of giving up on Christmas? What if instead of giving up on Christmas we allowed God to strip away all the tinsel and the neon? All the commercial packaging and the superficial sentiment. What if we called on the name of the Lord to reveal to us what the real hope of Christmas is? The ancient covenant promise of Christmas presence of Emmanuel, God with us. What if we realized we know now more than what the prophets didn't know then? That God did tear open the heavens and come down, but not in a way that made the mountains shake. What if we dared to believe, and for some of us perhaps for the very first time, that our God came down, really came down in a surprising quiet way to take upon himself the sorrows of this cruel world, to end the threat of ultimate, the ultimate judgment of death that we, are, we live under, to heal the pollution of sin infecting our hearts. What if by faith we declared our dependence upon God in Christ, this God in Christ who continues to come by his spirit into this world, remaking it as it is in heaven who continues to reshape our lives from a lump of mud into something beautiful and eternal. We wait on the Lord, we call on his name, and lastly Isaiah says, lay hold of him. Rather than continuing to live in the past of our absence from God, let us take up residence in the Lord's presence with us. Let us lay hold of the great yes, the now of God. We look back. That's our tendency, right? That's what we always do. We we look back all the time. While we look back, do you notice? God always looks ahead. While we can only remember our past, we can't let go of it. We hold it over other people's heads. God never forgets the future he has promised to us. The Lord is near in every difficulty and heartache. That is the message of Christmas. But the message of Christmas is also that the Lord is also far ahead of us, calling us forward into the bright new day of justice, healing, and peace for which our hearts long. And therefore, Isaiah says, lay hold of him, grab onto him. We wait upon the Lord by confessing, by coming clean. We call on the name of the Lord, we repent, we change direction. And now, We lay hold of him by pursuing goodness. After confession and repentance, we pursue goodness. We gladly do right, not out of our own strength, not out of our own resources, not in order to get, but in order to give. We gladly do right out of our relationship with our Father. We lay hold of our Father as we engage in relationship with Him through prayer and study of His Word. Things we talk about here at Grace all the time. We engage, we lay hold of our Father through worship. Worship in how we occupy our lives, not just a pew on Sunday morning. And we engage and lay hold of God through the gift of the sacrament. But most of all, we lay hold of God. We sharpen our anticipation for Him in our lives when we serve others, by acting out of this love we receive from Christ in the broken places of our, our world, by extending God's healing presence as far as the curse is found. This final part for Isaiah of laying hold of God makes me wonder if maybe, maybe just for things to be different this year, maybe instead of constantly asking ourselves of the next four weeks, what can I get everyone for Christmas. Does that question bug you like it bugs me? Does it stress you out? What can I get everyone for Christmas? Do you struggle like thinking about what you're gonna get your mom again for Christmas? Or getting everything that your kids want? It's what consumes us. What can I get everyone for Christmas? And then some of us get on this rampage where we're not giving anybody anything, right? We're gonna not do Christmas this year. What if instead of asking and being obsessed or plagued by what can I get everyone for Christmas? What if instead we took time to reflect what is the Lord seeking to give? What is the Lord seeking to give to me? What is the Lord seeking to give of me? What is the Lord seeking to give through me this Christmas? You don't have to stand in line for that. You don't have to charge up a credit card for that. You don't have to do bigger and better for that. You just simply have to confess, repent, to wait, to call out on the name of the Lord and just lay hold of him and let God reveal what he seeks to give to you, of you, and through you. Beloved, tis the season. (laughs) Tis the season. Tis the season not to look for a jolly old gift dispenser who will give us everything we want just as long as we've been good enough. "'Tis the season to long for a perfect and holy Savior who always gives us what we need even though we probably deserve nothing more than a lump of coal. Yearn for the presence of God during these next couple of weeks. Long for the coming of our Savior. The heavens will indeed be once again torn open but not through some fire in the sky. No, God will be present. God will come down much closer than that In the flesh, blood, heart-wrenching cry of a newborn baby born to reach into and redeem our broken hearts. Hallelujah, he is coming. He is coming. The potter is going to become the clay. The master will become the servant. Our hope is not in vain because the gift we are waiting to receive is one delivered to us long ago, packaged in swaddling clothes in that little town of Bethlehem, but fully unwrapped on a cross on Calvary. And despite our best efforts to return that gift, to bury him into the ground, he keeps coming back. He just keeps coming down and living into his prophetic name, Emmanuel, God with us. Our Lord is coming to be with us. Our Lord is for us, and we will meet him if we are willing to wait, if we are willing to entrust ourselves to be held, to be molded and reshaped. We will meet Jesus, you and I. We will meet him. Jesus who will need our broken and fragmented selves together again. Our broken and fragmented lives. Our broken and fragmented families. Our broken and fragmented communities. Our broken and fragmented world. Jesus will need our broken and fragmented selves together again. And he will hold and mold us tenderly. And he will welcome us home for Christmas once more. Amen.